Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam which means sin. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to the Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. The word of God for the people of God. For those of you who were not here on Ash Wednesday, or maybe for those of you, and I think I was in this category also, who forgot what we talked about on Ash Wednesday just a few weeks ago, uh, I went back to look, and Ash Wednesday we talked about cleaning up, how Lent is kind of a season in which we examine our whole lives, ourselves, and our relationship with God, and we do some cleaning. And we talked about the dust bunnies, right? that like to hide in the corners, just like they hide behind our refrigerator. Um, And we never see them until we pull out the fridge, and then there they are. It's uncomfortable sometimes to do that with our homes. It's even more uncomfortable to do that with our spiritual lives. And friends, today is one of those days. We're pulling out the fridge and looking behind it to see what needs to be cleaned up. My Presbyterian friends tell a story about a conference for ministers. After the main session had ended, everybody decided to go to the bar down the street from the conference center. The bartenders were obviously pretty excited because the room, which was once empty, was all of a sudden full with paying customers. But they soon realized that this was not an ordinary crowd of locals. Instead, it was a group of pastors, which they found to be exceptionally funny. At one point, one of the bartenders looked up and said, well, I guess if I have any big questions about the important things, you know, the meaning of life or what happens after I die, then I should ask them now because y'all probably have all the answers, right? Overhearing the question, and in a rare moment of seriousness, one of the pastors hollered back, Answers? I don't know anything about answers. I just try to ask good questions. Answers are important, 
but I think this pastor was right. An answer struggles to reach beyond the frame of the question. Leadership expert Dr. Marilee Adams has a popular book called Change Your Questions, Change Your Life. The book is so popular, it's now in its fourth edition. And in the book, she says, we live in the worlds that our questions create. Did you hear that? We live in the world our questions create. Academics in all kinds of disciplines know that this is true. Sociologists know that if you want to discover helpful information through a survey, you have to pay attention to the questions. Experiments in the natural sciences use the scientific method, which begins with asking a good question. Therapists and mental health clinicians, they specialize in asking exactly the right questions that can help us see ourselves in a new way. And lawyers, who I think are the best at this, are schooled for years to make sure that they know they have the right question. Because if they don't have the right question, they may be thrown out or their questioning be overruled for veering off course. Well, theologians and biblical scholars are also taught early on a certain set of questions with which to approach the text. And here in John's gospel, we find the disciples also asking a very important question, a question which defined the world in which they lived. Who sinned? Now, to us, this might seem like a silly question, if not plainly the wrong question, but it was nevertheless a valid question in the ancient world. Much like everyone else living in their society, the disciples had assumed that anyone born with or stricken by a physical ailment was suffering from sins committed by a previous generation. They believed because they had been taught to believe that physical ailments and genetic differences and even other things like bad fortune or just poverty, they were all symbols of God's favor or the lack thereof. There was an idea, or actually it was more like a functioning theology, really, that if somebody was living right, they would be spared from all kinds of pain and suffering and illness and hardship. But if they were immoral, God would smite them. Their question, who sinned? Their question exposes their assumptions and their misunderstanding of what sin represents now that Jesus is in the world. John scholar Caroline Lewis writes in her commentary, sin in the gospel of John is not a moral category, but a category of relationship. To be in sin in the gospel of John or to sin is not is to be not in relationship with God. Does that make sense? It's to be in a wrong or broken relationship. Sin is brokenness. It is relational more than it is moral. And so the disciples, in asking their honest question, discovered an error in their ways. They got a good look in the mirror, so to speak, 
when Jesus answers their question by saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned. In his answer, the disciples came to realize that their relationship with this man and so many others who were like him was broken because of the assumptions of guilt placed on marginalized people in the ancient world. Rather than trying to help this man, the disciples' first response was to assign fault. This is one of those moments, I don't know if you have them often, I know I do, when I'm reading the Bible and all of a sudden I remember a lesson that I learned in early elementary school, one of those fundamental things about how to live life. And in reading this text, I I couldn't help but remember the lesson of like, when you point your fingers, point them, right? No, actually point them. Yeah, thank you. Oh, you're all pointing at me. No, but like when you point your fingers on the playground and some smart aleck says to you, well, you're pointing one at me, but throw you back at yourself. One, two, three. Who sinned? They want to know. Was it him? Was it his parents? Who sinned? It's always easier to blame somebody else, isn't it? For the suffering that we might experience in our lives. The car accident happens. Well, the sun was in my eyes. I couldn't see. He wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. We did the thing incorrectly. I didn't get the memo. Wasn't my fault. Nobody told me. And then one that many of us may have said last night when our team lost the game. The refs were totally biased. I put that one in red in my manuscript because I feel like NC State fans say that a lot. (laughs) Thank you. I'm a State fan, I know. If we can blame somebody else, though, we can excuse ourselves from both ignorance and culpability. Blame allows us to continue to believe that whatever happened wasn't our fault. But blame also functions in another way. Like when things happen that are truly beyond explanation, the diagnosis is delivered, forcing us to change all of our plans, or the hurricane comes, destroying homes, businesses, and lives, or maybe the pandemic rages, causing isolation and disruption and death, or the economy, it expands too fast and then it contracts, leaving us all scared and scrounging to save every single penny we have. Who is responsible for these things. Why are they happening? Who's to blame? We want to know because we need to know how to project our fears upon somebody else and how to protect ourselves from the vulnerable truth that this kind of suffering right now might not be the last. In every age of human history, There are scapegoats, easy targets for all of our uncertainties. 
In recent history, these have been the feminists, the liberals, the conservatives, the academics, the working poor, the Hollywood elite, the gays, the Christians, the Muslims, the Jews, the racial minorities, the undocumented immigrants, the city dwellers, the country folk. The list goes on and on and on. And as we add our voices to the refrains, we perpetuate toxic ideologies and toxic theologies that alienate our relationship with God and with one another. More simply put, we sin. All the while pointing our fingers at somebody else as if they could possibly be responsible for our particular suffering. But this is not the way that Jesus taught us to live. Notice that when Jesus sees the blind man, he is not concerned at all with who is at fault, whether it's God or the parents of this man or the man himself. Instead of asking who sinned, Jesus wants to know is healing possible. Instead of who is to blame, Jesus wants to know how can we all be made whole instead of bless his heart. I feel so bad for him. I wish there was something I could do. Jesus bends down, scrapes up the mud beneath his feet, and then stole some spit from his own mouth, made a paste, and smeared it on the man's face. You see, Jesus is operating from a totally different framework, and because of it, everybody on the road that day experienced healing. Yes, we all remember the man who was born blind, whose eyes were opened after that spit mud paste was wiped across his face. But let us not read this story and overlook the others who were healed from their assumptions about who was right and who was wrong. Yes, even those faithful disciples, the ones who followed Jesus every single day, needed to learn that sometimes things are not as they seem. Sometimes our questions betray our biases. Sometimes it might help to take a faithful look in the mirror and allow God to show us some things that we need to unlearn in order to be healed. We didn't read the whole story from John's gospel today. It goes on for 29 more verses. And if you spend any time at all in John's gospel, you'll see that he can be a little verbose from time to time. But I would encourage you all to go home and read the whole story in John chapter 9 and see what bubbles up for you. But there's a Lutheran pastor named Nadia Boltz-Weber who paraphrases this story, and I think she does it really beautifully. So I would like to read her paraphrase. So hear now the gospel through her words. The kingdom of heaven is like this. God came to earth and walked among us for a while. While he was here, he encountered a man who was blind from birth and reduced to begging for his day-to-day needs. And though this man said nothing, Jesus saw him, went to him, and restored his sight. 
No one could believe the miracle that happened in their midst. Some thought it was fake news. Some suspected sorcery or a trick. Many pundits commented on it. They even brought the man's parents in to make sure it was really the right guy. But there was no getting around it. God's love had shined a light into his own literal darkness. But this love did not force its way in among the people. And so while many heard this good news and received new spiritual sight of their own, others were free to cling to their own way, even if it left them in the dark. Friends, in this season of Lent, we have all been asking our honest questions. Maybe you've written them down. Maybe you're keeping a journal. Maybe instead they're written on your heart or on your mind. Today we're taking the mirror to all of our questions to see what they may reveal about ourselves, about our biases, about the things we care about, about our assumptions. Today we are looking at ourselves. Today we journey alongside the disciples who were quick to ask who sinned and slow to learn that it was they themselves who needed to be healed. This is incredibly vulnerable work, but this is essential work if we truly want to continue to grow in relationship with God, and because of that, it is holy work. So in the moments ahead, in the silence, and then in the sounds of the music that follow, remember your questions, the ones maybe you've written, or the ones that are seared upon your hearts and mind. Remember your questions and invite God to open your eyes a bit so that you might begin to see what lies beneath the questions. As we've been doing each Sunday during Lent, there's purple pieces of paper in the back. There are pens back there as well. During the silent reflection and during the music which follows, I invite you to get up, get a piece of paper, and examine for yourself what might lie behind the questions. What is God teaching you what might you need to unlearn?